welcome to the First World Philippines podcast. Hey guys, it's Mike here and welcome to the First World Philippines podcast. Today's guest believes that Filipinos need to be more angry. Now that uh, can be taken out of context, <laughs> but from where our guest is coming from, it's the perspective of Filipino history. What can the history of the Philippines uh, teach us today in the present? And how can we link the history uh, of what happened in the past to uh, root cause of the issues, the social issues and challenges that we face today? Fantastic interview. Um, Evan has a Evan Graf, the person I'm interviewing here, a deep insight into Filipino history. He is a history teacher here in the Philippines. He was not born here, of course. He's going to share his story about uh, how he became to live here, how he loves this country, and how he believes Filipinos really have this amazing opportunity to rediscover themselves. So I won't allow myself to talk anymore because I think Evan explains this uh, more insightful than myself. So. Let's listen deeply to this amazing interview, in, very insightful interview with Evan Graf. Evan, thank you so much for making time uh, on your, on your Sunday, on your of day of rest. Mm. I appreciate you have been highly recommended by your brother-in-law, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Hefner. And I thought we would sit down and have a, a conversation, your own journey in the Philippines, mm -hmm. born in America, raised in Canada, but now here in the Philippines. Yeah. Love to hear your background. Just before we started recording, you. You uh, highlight one thing you said about the Filipino needs to be more angry. So mm, yeah. I would love to you to take uh, explain more what you mean by that. Yeah. You've taken a lot of time to study Filipino history and uh, what that means for Filipinos today. And I really, I really passionately believe when I was a student, history was always my favorite subject. But when I see here in the Philippines, if we don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. And we have to see how. It influences the way we think today. So before we jump into that, how, how are you here in the Philippines? <laughs> your, your Filipino story, how have you uh, arrived here? I know you're a teacher in a mm. local international school, but please tell your, sto your background story that, that how you arrived here. Okay, sure. Um, my wife uh, did her senior year of high school here in the Philippines because my in-laws, her parents, came to the Philippines in 1987 as missionaries. Yeah. So they came as uh, evangelist, church planter, missionaries. Um, so she came as a teenager. And um, so when I met her, they were still serving in the Philippines. Uh, her mother had started running a birthing clinic uh, in the early 90s and her father was pastoring the church. And after we'd been married for a few years and we were casting about for something meaningful to do with our lives, uh, we decided, were led to, uh, and decided to come to the Philippines to uh, try to do some work with the young, um, out-of-school children, youth that were, uh, that my mother-in-law was encountering through her work with sort of primary health care yeah. and childbirth, and that there was a large population in indigent communities that were not attending school. So um, my background is education, and so we decided to come see if we could supplement what her parents were doing here. So that would have been in the fall of 2000. 
Uh, so we sold everything and packed up all our stuff and uh, moved to the Philippines. Uh, I had three children at the time. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and immediately upon arrival, uh, an older Filipino boy who had been fostered by my uh, in-laws moved in with us. Yeah. Uh, so four kids. Um, and then a, a few years of working in a uh, depressed area uh, in Quezon City, actually a community right underneath the Katipunan flyover at Aurora Boulevard. Um, down underneath there, there was a community that's not there anymore. Uh, and we spent some time there. We had a group of kids who were not attending regular school that we were helping using kind of a modified homeschooling program. Uh, and then my in-laws decided to retire from running the birthing clinic to go into pastoring full-time. Okay. And they said, well, would you like to, you know, take over and do the clinic as well as your thing? And we tried that for about a year and couple of things, you know, we didn't have the, the passion or the desire for the birthing clinic end, and uh, we ended up, in the end, we ended up merging the two, we had two separate charitable companies, we merged them together, and the short version is over the next couple of years, it really transformed from a birthing clinic to uh, an orphanage, mm -hmm. which is now what my wife does full time, she's the executive director uh, of an orphanage uh, in Quezon City. And then over the next couple of years, our national staff, uh, as we became accredited and certified and went through all the process of becoming um, a professional organization, we took on more staff and social workers and caregivers and managers, and my role kind of disappeared, went away. At the same time, my kids were in, at that point, um, high school, middle school, and elementary school. Um, it was probably up to five kids by that point as well. Yep, five kids. Uh, we adopted the older uh, Filipino boy. Um, and so I ended up starting teaching at Faith Academy uh, in Cainta, where I have been since. That's 2008. And so for the last 11 years, I've been teaching there. And then along the way, picked up another Filipino child. So I have I have bookends. <laughs> so I have like four white kids in the middle, and then I have an older and a youngest uh, Filipino kid. So six in total. So if I hear you're approaching twenty years in the Philippines. Twenty years in the Philippines. Yeah. Wow. Almost. Yeah. So let's ju jump into a, co a couple of so many places we could go with this. And uh, let me start with the how Filipino culture has changed you. That's yeah. a very broad question. Of course, you've spend most of your life at the beginning mm -hmm. in the North America yeah. and how in that 20 years how different is that young man that first arrived here versus <laughs> the man this wise man that's here today yeah there's uh, there's a lot of things um, uh, I mean there's the obvious things that people often um, remark about Filipino culture sort of the the overt friendliness and um, the focus on family and the value of personal relationships over sometimes bigger uh, bigger pictures so there's a long learning process for me and also during that 20 years my wife has effectively become a Filipina it sounds weird to say that but the truth is people who don't meet my wife in person but meet her on the phone are often shocked that she's not Filipina okay. Uh, the high school secretary at my school 
assumed that my wife was a Filipina and I just had very powerful DNA, which is why I had these, <laughs> had these white children. I think lakas ng dugo was the word that she used to another. Uh, anyway, and so along those 20 years, I've, I mean, our family, the way our family relationships work have become more, more Asian, more Filipino um, in the things that we value and in the emphasis on family and personal relationships. Just the way, and if you came to my house, <laughs> my house is basically a chaos of people. It's mm. it's very Filipino in the in one sense, except there. I mean, we I, I live on the top floor of an orphanage, and there isn't a hard dividing line between mm. where the where the orphanage ends and where my family space starts. Uh, so that's been a huge um, a huge change for me in a, a learning to not learning to sacrifice privacy and personal space and things that in the West we value very highly, and I still do, still a, yeah. a constant area of growth for me. Um, that's been a, a big, a big thing for me. Um, let's see, what else? I mean, uh, I've learned to, learned to definitely love the climate here. I mean, that's not yeah. a huge, that's not a huge profound thing. Uh, but definitely appreciate warm weather. I grew up in Canada, minus 40 winters. I never, ever, ever want to do that again as long as I live. I'm perfectly happy to stay in a tropical country. So it's hard to know how much, how much of the person that I am now is because of being in the Philippines or just the fact that, you know, I'm 45. That's wrong. I'm 46. <laughs> it's okay. I also get my age wrong sometimes. People ask me and I count. People say, how old are you? And I just go, what year is it now? Right. So I'm, yes, I'm 46. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of my, like, that's a, that's a huge chunk. I came here as a 20-something-year-old as a and I mean, almost came of age. I mean, you know, come-of-age stories are usually sort of teenagers, but to mm. the extent of, and my kids grew up here. Uh, mm. So my children... Like, this is home for them, which yeah. is a big thing. Even though um, a number of them are living in Canada now, this is still home. Yeah. And they struggle. It's interesting. They have some of the struggles you would expect from someone immigrating from a foreign country to a new country. Yeah. They, <laughs> they fundamentally don't understand white people think is part of the problem. So when my son moved, it was remarkable because I was like, oh, you know, have you made any new friends? And he was like, oh, yeah. I mean, there were, you know, two Filipinos and a guy from Somalia, I think, and then a guy from Eastern Europe for his friend group when he first moved. And I guess uh, to extent that's me too. I have a hard time with the sort of homogenous Western cultures. Yeah. Like it's a struggle to go back and to be in a group that's it's all all the same yeah and I mean part of that is being part of an expat community here like and mm. teaching at an international school where there's there's a lot of diversity yeah. yeah so yeah um, that's all that springs to mind no problem we're gonna dig yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's more there it's just not all at the surface no I, I just wanted your first uh, yeah your first impression to that answer. The other important thing, okay, here's here's another important thing for me, was coming to the Philippines 
I had very little uh, Philippine history. I majored in history in university, and I did in one world history class do a research paper. By that time, I think I was married, and so the Philippines was on my radar. And I did do one research paper that was focused sort of on the Marcos era in the Philippines. Yeah. But I had very minimal understanding of the longer sort of arc of Philippine history yeah. until I'd been here for a while. And then I, even then, my one of my areas of interest was always sort of military diplomatic history. And so then I became interested in the Philippines because of World War II and the Pacific and its important role in that. Um, and it's taken a longer time to sort of dig a little deeper and learn a little bit more about the yeah. colonial history and the role of uh, the Spanish and particularly of the Catholic Church in yeah. Philippine history. And I still think, you know, the realization, um, I'm not sure where it was that I first, oh, I, okay, so I was on uh, Corregidor doing the tour of Corregidor Island, and there's a uh, monument on the island that has panels that depict uh, various wars uh, and they honor um, the fallen heroes of various wars that the Philippines have been involved in. Yeah. And so you, know, you look at it and there's one for World War II and there's one for this. And there's a monument there to the Philippine guerrilla war. And at the time, my first time on Corregidor, I was like, well, well, what is that? And so I got a little bit from the tour guide explaining, well, that's when Filipinos resisted the American occupation. And I was like, oh, that was not in my history textbook that I remember. And I don't, I would, I would assume that it is not on the radar of a lot of Westerners, that that particular uh, that particular period, and it's important. Like I'm surprised. So yeah. I make a deliberate attempt to when I, I was teaching ninth graders last week, talking about imperialism, and one of the things that we made sure we talked about was you do know that there was this there was resistance. Like there mm -hmm. were people who actively fought against what they saw as a foreign occupation. Yeah, I, I love to go deeper here on this because. You know, there's a famous quote about that uh, history books are sometimes written by the victors yeah. or with the perspective of the victors. It is. And I think one of the things that in my own study of Filipino history that I was shocked to discover is the f that guerrilla war that you refer to the, or what the Americans call as the Filipino-American war yes. uh, killed more Filipinos in that two years span mm. than the Spanish did in their entire mm. time. It was yeah. so bloody. However, it doesn't... It surprises me, just like we were talking before, that more Filipinos are not uh, agitated by this. Yeah. More, more, there's not more. Sh um, this is not the intention. Just so <laughs> listeners, this is not an anti-American <laughs> spin here. We're going to start this a revolution. A, <laughs> we're not. The intention is to start a revolution, but we must understand history. Yeah. And if there's missing really pages, important. or of the, the Filipino history, as well as not just missing pages, but misinterpreted or from one perspective, it really changes how people think today. So. Well, it's important for it's important for expats too yeah. to understand. Like it's yeah. really important. I think some of the insensitive comments or some of the lack of understanding that sometimes foreigner ha foreigners have of Filipinos revolve around that lack of understanding. And I think part of it is being in Manila is a little more insulated. But my understanding is those sentiments and the memory of those events are more more real, more present um, in the southern Philippines. Uh, there was recently the story um, of the return of the church bell 
Yeah. Um, which, again, that's something that, like, there's a memory of that yeah. amongst people in those communities yeah. that I think is, is maybe less, yeah. maybe lesser. But it's true that, it's cliche, but it's true that the victors write the history book, or yeah. the publishers write the history books, or, or whatever it is. Um, and that's a, that's a big gap. I mean, so growing up Canadian, we had our own version of that, which is that the U.S. history textbooks don't say much about the War of 1812. They'll get a little blip or something. But this is a huge thing. The Canadian version of that story goes that the United States invaded Canada and was repelled, and then Washington, D.C. was sacked and the White House was burnt, like that's the, yeah. which is also grossly inaccurate in a lot of ways. Um, but in American textbooks, it gets virtually no play at all. So I think, in some sense, the guerrilla war is a reflection of that. Because in the period after the guerrilla war, my understanding is there was a significant influence in the education of Filipinos because yep. there, were, there was a movement of bringing particularly young women, young American teachers, to yep. the Philippines to start schools and to teach. And you can imagine that that has had a long-term impact on... Yep on what gets told, like yeah. what are the things that we study. So some observers have called this the miseducation of the Filipino. Mm -hmm. And this is not a one-off event, but this is through a period of decades mm -hmm. that the early colonial government of the, the US, their primary, primary goal was pacification of the Filipino, not to create rebellious Filipinos, which means to pacify, you must subscribe to the will and way of thinkings and be very pro-American. Um, so, so, so for my own study, and I'd love to hear your, when you hear that phrase, the miseducation of the Filipino, which some people may inter be offended by, but I think this is, we're digging here to get to the root causes. W what do you see as some of the biggest false beliefs the Filipinos have today about their history that, they, that needs to be corrected? Well, this is <laughs> it's very dangerous territory. Yeah, and, yeah. And because here we are, right, two white dudes talking about <laughs> Philippine history and what Filipinos should know about their own history. But it's been a learning curve for me. And so I can reflect more on the things that I have learned hmm. that um, may speak to things that Filipinos may have not known. Like, and some of it has come from other Filipinos. I mean, I mentioned Carlos uh, before. And some other um, articles that I've read by Philippine historians that question, for example, the choice of Jose Rizal as the the national hero. There are Philippine historians, revisionist-ish historians, which is, I mean, I I see that as a badge of honor. Revisionist historians to me are the best kind of historians because they're revisiting and, in many cases, fixing things of the yeah. past. Is how I see it. But there are, there are, I didn't know this until I probably said something stupid and was corrected by a Filipino, that there are revisionist Filipino historians who question the choice of Jose Rizal. And when you think about it, if you get a little bit of that sort of conspiracy theory thought going, you think, yeah, why would they choose a poet and not a revolutionary? Like, why not Aguinaldo as a national hero? Right? Why Rizal? And I mean, I don't want to question, I don't want to talk smack about a guy who has all, you know, half the country named after him <laughs> and stuff. And I've, I haven't read all of the Noli, but I have powered through parts of it. It's, I'm, it's on my list. I'm working on it. Um, and so that, I mean, that's one that, again, I've had time to, to, to start to think about and to look and to try to find what Filipino historians who mm. are actively think. And so I guess in terms of how does that 
what does that mean for Filipinos is I think those Filipino historians who are revisiting issues like um, Rizal, like you should read that, you should engage with that. Like it's really important. My study, so I, my major area of focus in the university was actually United States history, even though I did it at a Canadian university, which made it fun in a lot of ways. Um, but one of the things that I encountered was sort of a reworking of all of the stuff that that I had been taught. I mean, my family's American, and so there are those sort of, they're almost like the legends upon which you build a national identity. And I found myself really, really being impacted by historians who were calling those things into question. Yeah. So a guy like Howard Zinn wrote a book called The People's History of the United States, which is all of the stuff that's not in the textbook. So it's all about poor people, and it's about women, and it's about minorities, and it's about pacifists, and it's about socialists. And it's all about all the stuff that's not in the textbook. And it would be... I think that that kind of thing is a healthy thing for a culture and a society, a process to, to undergo. So that it doesn't mean that that you lose sort of national identity or that you don't have these common narratives that inform who you are, but it means they're, they become, they're real. They're not, they're not myths. Yeah. They're like, it's a healthy process, I think. And I don't know where, I'm not plugged into, you know, the history department at the University of the Philippines at all. So I don't know where, like, who those authors are right now or where, yeah. you know, where you would plot it along that continuum. Yeah. But there must be. I mean, I know I've read a few, but I'm sure there yeah. are more, especially at the University of the Philippines, which sometimes has a more radicals the wrong word. I don't know what the word is for UP. alternative. Yeah, the activist, activist I think yeah. would be a good way to describe a lot of yeah. that there. Do you feel that when we look towards the, into the future of the Philippines that nationhood or the Filipino identity to create the Filipino identity, one must goes back to discover what it, what the early leaders, those um, those illustrados at the time, they were mm -hmm. breaking free from the Spanish, mm -hmm. what their vision of the country is yeah. versus what it is today. So, I know this is a complex question, but what do you, what for you is Filipino identity? Yeah, that's a. That's a good question. I, I don't know that I can answer it because I think, I mean, there are these sort of in history sociology, there are these fundamental things that we believe make up a national identity, right? There are these unifying forces, so they can be sort of geographic boundaries, which is hard in the Philippines, right? Because it's an archipelago, yeah. and depending on where you are, in some cases where it's closer to Indonesia, you get a different sort of cultural yeah. experience and in places like places closer to Malaysia like you get you get that um, often a shared ethnicity is part of it but again I was surprised having lived here for 20 years at the diversity of what you would call ethnicity that you call in the yeah. Philippines like there really are it's diverse it's more diverse than a lot of Asian countries again being that because it's kind of a spread out archipelago so you have all these different all these different groups right national language is often an important unifying factor. And there have been efforts um, here in the Philippines um, after the Spanish. Um, you know, the adoption of English has gone kind of in fits and starts. There have been periods 
where it's been emphasized here in the Philippines and in this education system, you know, English has been pushed. But there's also so, uh, voices that, that, that say there should be a national language and so then you get Filipino. But Filipino is largely Tagalog, which is, I mean, it's a choice. It's kind of an arbitrary choice that your national language is going to be based on what is sort of the regional language of southern Luzon in a lot of ways. And Filipinos themselves are almost all at least trilingual. Like anybody who, if, if you come here and you meet a Filipino, they're generally going to speak English, they're going to speak Filipino slash Tagalog, yeah. and then they're going to speak the dialect of, especially here in Manila, because, you know, everybody's an import, they're going to speak the dialect of where they're from. And that's just to begin with. And then often they will be well-versed in several other local dialects, yeah. you know, never mind if they've traveled abroad and know in other countries. So, again, most Filipinos I know are, are at least three, at least three languages. So that, again, that makes that other sort of unifying thing of a national language uh, sort of a strange one. And then uh, a shared historical experience is often part of building a national identity. And maybe that's, you know, maybe maybe I'm circling back around yeah. to that idea. So maybe, maybe that is. Um, I'm also wary of, I'm wary of patriotism and I'm wary of nationalism. Yeah. Because as someone, as a student of history, I find few positive outcomes um, long-term of nationalist movements, eh, maybe not of nationalist movements, but of those sentiments. Yeah. Like, because when the pendulum swings towards a sort of jingoist, blind patriotism, patriotism, only bad things happen. And so I'm not sure what the, where the sort of healthy balance is between a national identity. I think for me, a more important important part, a more important thing than national identities is maybe uh, communities. Like the, the more granular and the smaller, um, I think you get more positive outcomes. I mean, that doesn't mean that <laughs> I'm some sort of weird globalist internationalist <laughs> who thinks all nationalities should go away and we should all live in tribes or something like that. But I just see, I've come to see communities as being capable of more positive outcomes than broader sort of national movements. Yeah. And I think there's a tendency to look to national leadership to change underlying like problems. So, you know, even to step out of the Philippine context, we talk about, you know, problems with pollution. So I just spent a week camping on Corregidor and the amount of garbage stressed me out a lot. And, but thinking about it, like, is that a problem that needs to be addressed on a national level, or is that something that smaller communities can start to work together to figure out? Yeah. And I wonder how that applies. I, I don't, now I'm just going a little bit off script. I'm not sure. But I think that communities are m more capable of positive change than our broader sort of national identities. Yeah. yeah. No, I like where you're going with this because. It is a, a misinterpreted word, nationalism and patriotism. Mm. Um, one of the my own observations in the Philippines is that the American colonialization period mm. intended to strip away its self, sense of self pride in its mm. in its people. Yeah. And one of the things to, to come to create a first world Philippines, not necessarily copy paste from the Western model, but a, a Philippines where no one is left behind, yeah. where there's equality for all, I feel there needs to be this return to that sense of, 
of pride. Proud to be Pinoy, Hindi lang sa salita, but in words, yeah. but, but in action. Yeah. So, one of my observations is, one of the ways to inspire Filipinos to believe in this is to shine the light on Filipinos that are living this out. Mm. So, my question for you is, when you see the phrase, or hear the phrase, proud to be, or world-class Filipino, or proud to be Pinoy, what community, to link back to your previous connection, is a great example of that's what Filipino values is about. I know you've traveled many parts of the country, but what, when you see a small group of Filipinos, a community, whether it be on a different province or here in Metro Manila, they're living their Filipino identity and that you can point to, that's what the Philippines could be. What, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I see, I see inklings, and I don't. I by no means have a sort of broad spectrum view of the country. I've traveled less than, than I should probably in the Philippines. Again, and my lens tends to be sort of Metro Manila and the outlying areas, which is not a true picture uh, yeah. of the country as a whole. So I can only think about when I see. It's those rare glimpses when you see. Uh, a community where you have so, you know, you think we're here in BGC, right? And we have this this thing that BGC is. Yeah. Um, and when you see rare glimpses where the two parts can somehow find common ground. So, for example, the school that I teach in is in a um, big sort of country club owned chunk of land that has a lot of informal settlers, uh, a number of communities within it. And so there are times, there are glimpses when our community, when our school does things that include those people. And it's by no means, it's like they're, I mean, by comparison, they're, they're tiny little, tiny little gestures. So an example would be um, at the gate of the school, ever since, like, the school's been around for since the 1950s. Uh, but at one point, it was had the only functioning deep water well on the place. And so they put a tap outside so that the informal settlers could come and also access water. And that's something they've done for decades. And now the school's transitioned away from well water and is using manila water, but still we have these taps installed outside. Mm. And so the community in the afternoons, um, the indigent community and the informal settlers come with all of their containers and they fill up their water at the side of the school. And it's a, it's, a, it's a tiny thing, and it's not to sound in any way like self-righteous about this amazing thing that, that yeah. we're doing. But it's a tiny little action that I feel like it's, it's making this connection that those people who are neighbors, like they're literally neighbors, are part of this thing that we should. And like here in the fort, there are opportunities. Like I see it. Um, you see displays of wealth and you see displays of poverty juxtaposed. One of the first time I came to the Philippines in 1997, I was in a mall, probably in Makati, and I was in a high-end furniture store. I, I don't remember why, <laughs> looking at really fancy chairs or maybe sitting down in a really fancy Italian leather couch and, and sitting at the window and looking out into an empty lot where there was um, a, a person with a, a shack built in the empty lot, you know, hanging up their laundry, just, you know, doing life, but doing life in this, and just being 
profoundly affected by that. The fact that they're right, they're like they're literally right next to each other, but there isn't. They're not acknowledging each other. Does that, does that make sense? And yeah. I don't. I wish I. I wish I had more examples. I know there are. I mean, they pop up in my social media feed, you know, yeah. stories of communities that are doing things to, to build ties uh, with each other. But um, even in my life, like, I kind of live in a couple of bubbles. I mean, my home is it's not in a gated subdivision. It's yeah. def- but I still don't really know my neighbors, yeah. right? I mean, people in the neighborhood know me because I'm the foreigner guy. Yeah. So they wave and say hi, and I, I don't know who they are. And that's my fault. Right, like that. What I should be doing is talking and meeting people and being a part of my community, and I don't model that behavior very well. But I think more of that because I mean, one of the features of developing economies is that part of it develops really fast and part of it gets left behind. Mm. And I think we see that all over the world. Mm. And you know, to be in a community here where there's a Lamborghini dealership, but there are also desperately poor people yeah. there has to be something there has to be some way that because yeah. they have to they're part of the same thing like somehow they have to be part of the same thing like what you said of moving forward but not leaving people behind yeah. well I was hoping we could build on this I guess for a lot of foreigners you give us a visualization from 1997 the yeah. first time I, I can relate I can relate to that story and I think a lot of foreigners especially the first time in a developing country, perhaps like the Philippines, that shock when you see the social injustices mm. between people that are born in the same land, but obviously I've, when I lived, was born in Ireland, like you in, in the US or Canada, you just don't see that. Um, I'm just, from your study of Filipino history, what from Filipino history can help explain today why the social these social divisions exist. What, what do you see that most Filipinos perhaps have not made a connection? And it's not to criticize most Filipinos, mm-hmm. but just the way history books have been written slash miswritten, that a lot of the root causes of the social divisions today have their live in the past. What 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 has your study yeah, been good, telling you? That's a good question. I'm sorry for all these heavy questions. No, that's <laughs> a great question. I just don't know. I don't know if I can if I can do a good job of answering it. And also, I would say that. One of the things that living here did is opened my eyes to when I went back to Canada is to see a little bit more clearly and discover that there are people who are apart and not mm. part of the community. Like that, I think for me, sort of, this is a, so this is going back to the question you led with, and then I will try to figure out an answer to that <laughs> other question. Um, going back to what you led with, one of the things that's changed about me is I think my eyes are open to be able to see. So even when we were back for a year in Canada, I think I saw the people who were left out, the people who were not. I mean, Canada has a great social safety net. Um, you know, we have, we have a welfare system and we have uh, socialized health care and we have all of these things. But once you learn to sort of pay attention a little bit, you see that it still misses lots of people, particularly our First Nations community in Canada, where yeah, that is a source of national shame uh, for Canada. But that, I think that's part of the thing. I think in Canada right now, there is a process whereby people are beginning to understand the historical factors that explain why we have these indigenous communities that have these high rates of suicide and high rates of like, 
ridiculously high rates of poverty and substance mm -hmm. abuse and all of these problems and starting to understand what the roots are of that problem and where that came from. Yeah. So, I mean, even now, so this is Canada in the 21st century, there's still a, a, a measure of sort of truth and reconciliation that is going on between, I don't know, Western type Canadians and indigenous people who've been yeah. left out of the conversation uh, for centuries. And so maybe, maybe that provides some inkling into a process that could happen here. I, I specifically don't necessarily know what all the historical factors are that led to that division, that disconnect between the haves and the have-nots here, but that there has to be a conversation about how they got there. Like, yeah. how did that happen? How did we end up with, at the same time, air-conditioned SUVs, you know, driving past people, people yeah. that are poor? Like, we can... I, I do that. I drive every day when I drive through these communities on my way um, to school in my air-conditioned car. I pass by people who are living primitively, for lack yeah. of a, without running water, without electricity. Well, sometimes with electricity. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that maybe understanding how that came about. Like, how did we get, how did we get to now? That's a book somebody wrote that book yeah, how, do we get how did to how did we get to now like how did that how did that happen and maybe in there lies some of the because it like there has to be a convergence at some point right between the people whose story has taken them to uh, a condo in the fort and the people whose story has taken them you know to tondo right like there has to be a convergence somewhere and maybe finding that that commonality will help build some sense of community. Yeah. I think I've always sensed that there is, I think sometimes poverty creates in people a sense of fear, almost like it's catching, like almost like it's a thing to be avoided, right? And so once you're not poor anymore, that you should just kind of flee and run as far away from that as possible, and I know lots of people for whom that's not true. I know, I know, we have lots of examples of people who don't do that. But I think that's still that's still a thing. We try to insulate ourselves from because it's hard. Like, I mean, when you're sitting in traffic and someone taps on your on your window, like that's a it shouldn't be hard. So I mean, I make I try what I try to do is roll down my window all the way and actually speak and you know I mean I hand over coins or, or whatever I do but just try to make an actual even if it's a split second just contact like acknowledge like that that's a person right? and I don't know I don't know what I mean I hear people say oh well you shouldn't give money because it's a syndicate or because they're gonna buy drugs like, but that's not that's not my I just <laughs> I want to overthink it, and I do, right? So yeah. I do overthink it and instead of just saying, this is a person, right, and I should do yeah. something, acknowledge them. You know, before this, we started recording, it's in, it's almost impossible. Which country should you compare Philippines to? Yeah. Well, uh, we, obviously, in Asia, it's very difficult to do a comparison because no one has a, had a similar type of experience like the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the closest 
set of countries is in Latin America, yeah. if you will. So I know you've done a lot of reflection on this um, from your own study of history. What's happened in Latin America, um, who also had a, um, been colonized by the Spanish, mm. what happened in Latin America post Spanish independence, if you yeah. independence from Spain, yeah. that perhaps hasn't happened in the Philippines? What can we learn from the Latin American post independence experience? That's a good question. I, I, I find it, it's true that I have found that the Latin American example tends to resonate. I, I've shared um, Eduardo, Eduardo Galliano's book, uh, Open Veins of Latin America, with a number of Filipinos, ranging from high school students to um, adults. And in a lot of cases, some of his writing resonates because his book is all about sort of the exploitation of Latin America by the Spanish and the transition from the Spanish to the Americans. It's a slightly different model where the, the exploitation by the United States of Latin America in the late 19th and 20th century tended toward sort of the using economic power and yeah. creating these single commodity economies yeah. and bankrupting countries and, and you know, and then getting into the 1970s and trying to rig elections. And we don't need to go too far down the road of <laughs> bashing Americans <laughs> or American foreign policy, not specifically Americans. Um, and so parts of that I know have resonated with the Filipinos that I've shared it with. And I, I think maybe, but we talked about this earlier, there isn't, there isn't a Simon Bolivar. Like there's not that in those Latin American countries they have this narrative, which, I mean, I'm sure revisionist historians there are now rethinking this entire narrative too, but they have this narrative of sort of the casting off of the Spanish colonial colonial yoke yeah. and sort of forging ahead. Um, and maybe that maybe that's part of where the story diverts in the Philippines, because the, that transition was meant to be 1898. Yeah. Like, really, that was the moment. Like, the other day, I was reading... Um, an English translation of the uh, 19, 1898 Philippine Declaration of Independence. And the language in it is so hopeful, yeah. right? This idea that after centuries, you know, it is that, it's that language of we're casting off this colonial yoke and forging ahead our, our own nation. Yeah. And in the closing, there's, there is a, there's, there's like, a, like a thank you blurb to the United States, you know, for helping us to, this, this land, what is the, I wish I had the wording right, but it's this reference of America, you know, this land that values liberty so much has aided us in our, mm. and I just, I read that and it was like this sense of foreboding. Like when mm. you put yourself in that moment and think, boy, if, if they knew what the next 50 years were gonna look like, like they wouldn't have. And so that that transition is is strange, right? Because yeah. there isn't, like it's, it's the, it's really the war between the United States and Spain allows for that 1898 moment, but then it doesn't translate into real independence. Yeah. And I don't know if, I mean, I suppose people would argue when that transition really happens. I mean, mm -hmm. even after World War II, the influence of the United States in this country was really profound. Yeah. And in the 87 Constitution, you see some of the sort of reaction against that and you see provisions about um, ownership of land and provisions about 
corporate, you know, corporate board makeup being predominant. Part of that, I think, is it's sort of this continuing process of <laughs> maybe the fight for independence still like continuing on. The fire still, the fire is yeah. not extinguished. Yeah, and and well, because it's still there, mm. right? And American imperialism, colonialism is is different because there's this there's so much of what the United States has, how it has come to have such a profound influence, is not a projection. It, it's not conquest in the sort of 17th and 18th century model of the European powers, yeah. right? You know, in Africa, in South America, even, yeah. even in North America. Instead, it's this projection of economic power and pop culture that just kind of, like, it's it's a juggernaut. I don't know how I, how you how you can filter out the things that you want and not have this sort of overpowering the American thing, yeah. right, yeah. that just takes over. And I think we were talking about this off, uh, off mic before about how in Latin America there's still some of that link to like the literary and cultural tradition of the Iberian Peninsula of Spain, of Spain and Portugal. Yeah. Whereas that was kind of lopped off and then American 20th century culture 20th century culture kind of grafted on mm. and so there's this it's like there's an interruption at the at the yeah. turn of the 20th century and what is I was I think I was paraphrasing Carlos with his instead of um, Cervantes the mm. Philippines got Clark Gable like happened to get American culture right at the moment where it was becoming the most sort of commercial, trivial, commercial yeah. and trivial and, you know, sophomoric. Yeah. Like, it's not, yeah. they didn't, yeah, I mean, even, yeah. I, 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 know, I love where you're going with this because my own study of this topic is, this is not an anti-colonial interview. I'm, our message is not anti-colonial. Mm. But to embrace, there was many positive things that the Spanish, and I, I'm Irish, I the British colonized us for 800 plus years. So I, this is coming from a very my own journey to say, you know what? Yes, Britain did cause a lot of harm to my country, Ireland, but also there's a lot of great things that was introduced or accelerated. And for the, how can Filipinos look at the Spanish period and say, yes, there was a, a lot of injustices, but also there was a lot of great things. And we can see this in the writings of the Ilustrados at the time. There were, there was a lot of great things to be, a lot of noble things that the Spanish uh, lived for. Obviously, they had a lot of principles that they didn't actually apply those principles. But the how the Americans came in was very, oh no, this is all evil, this is all corrupt, yeah. and here's a new system. And I think the impact of that is still felt today. The loss of that, loss of, of the yeah, literary yeah. tradition, right? I mean, even Rizal was writing in Spanish. I mean, you yeah. think about if it hadn't been for that interruption, what sort of indigenous literary tradition might have might have evolved? You know, using Spanish as the language yeah. uh, of literature, like it did in in Latin America, yeah. right? It carried on. Instead, it was interrupted. And again, it's that pivotal point. So not only is the is the interruption, you know, you can't use Spanish as a language of scholarship anymore. But it's not what it's replaced with. Is like I said, it's that is this twentieth century sort of trivialized version. It's the Hollywood instead of yeah. Instead of the literature, um, which is just sad. Which creates this loss of uh, this, this uh, identity struggle that yeah. is still 
felt today. And I wonder, like, it would be also interesting to have a conversation um, with uh, someone from Latin America to see how they how they kind of resolve that tension between the fact that you know Spanish was the language of the conqueror, right, yeah. and the Catholic Church is, was guilty of all kinds of abuses, but at the same time, you know now it is the unifying thing like now it's it, it it's provides them with a national language and part of their national identity that's a because uh, that's hard i mean so ireland yeah that's another good example yeah. but but language and institutions and yeah i want to go full full circle because mm -hmm. you said something before we started recording about us you Filipinos should be more angry. Yeah. And this was, Evan was talking about a story. He was teaching a particular topic, and there was Filipino students in the classroom, and you were shocked by their their reaction. And their reaction was more of acceptance rather than anger to do something about it. Yeah. Um, can you tell that story, and sure. maybe what is the lesson that we can take from that story? Well, and it's not a, I mean, it's not a huge sample size, right? Okay. I mean, my classroom um, is not, again, it's, it's not necessarily representative. Um, but we were doing a lesson on imperialism. Yeah. And so I have selected sources that were meant to be contextually significant sources. Mm. And so... Um, you know, we read a quote from Cecil Rhodes about sort of the right of the Anglo-Saxon race to, to conquer the world. White and man's then, burden, is it? Well, that's, yeah. that's Kipling. We got Kipling, to that. Okay. Yeah, we okay. did get to the white man's <laughs> burden. And then um, we read the quote from William Howard Taft about when he was reporting on the Philippines, reporting that our little brown brothers need, I don't remember what he said, decades of... I mean, the, to paraphrase what he was saying is that we need to supervise Filipinos for several decades before they will be capable of having their own government. It's incredibly condescending and incredibly racist. And then again, read The White Man's Burden, right, about this thing that uses, refers to these people as half devil and half child. And so we went through these and then I'm reading the room and I'm going, you people are not angry enough. Like I'm, I'm the white person in this room, and I am angry. Like this makes me mad that people said these things and talked this way and believed these things. And I mean, part of it is, you know, they're teenagers and they're high school students, and they might be a little apathetic anyway. But if that kind of thing doesn't outrage you, then I don't know if you're paying attention. Like that's a that's an offensive thing. And I think I think it's also for me, as a as an expat living here, it's very it's a cautionary tale for me to be really careful about the way I think and the way I talk about Philippine culture, to make sure that I'm not myself sort of coming across as that yeah. that's you know Taft saying, well, what you really need here is mm. we'll we'll show you right, yeah. we'll we'll show you how to do it, and then mm. after we've supervised you for a while, then you know you're free to do it on your own. Like, it's a fine line. Yeah, like Very fine line. want to be helpful, but not at all. You want to avoid well, racism, but condescension, right? Yeah. It's and that's that's difficult. So that I, I mean, and that that idea of anger. I mean, it has to do with just being conversant in the history. I mean, it seems to me that 
if you're aware of the history of that period, like really that period between the end of the Spanish colonial era and the guerrilla war and through sort of maybe to the end of World War II and the kind of official um, granting, make sure you hear the sarcasm in my voice, granting of independence in 1946 by the United States. Um, like understanding that that period and sort of like the 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 hope deferred or the the missed opportunity yep. uh, that was really there, like that should that should be like sad, but I mean motivating sad. Yeah. You know what Invoke I mean? Evoke emotions like, that create positive response. Yeah, that make you want to like yeah. should do something. Yeah, we should. Yeah, this is good. This is a, I like the call of action here. <laughs> Because uh, myself, I'm guilty of studying Irish history mm. and going to different places around Ireland and getting sad at the end. Where the historians and the English killed us all. Yeah. <laughs> and the English conquered them. And it can be quite defeatism. But a lot of, lot of martyrs. Yeah, a lot of martyrs. Is, it's, but one of the things that I noticed, one of the things that as, a, as an early observer in the Philippines, I, was like, I thought to myself, it seems like a lot of the national heroes are martyrs. Mm. And in, certainly in American history, they're not like there aren't a lot of I mean there are a few notable but really when you look at whatever you call the heroes of American history there's very few martyrs but there seems to so in, in you know interrupting your story of Irish yeah, history to yeah. point out there's martyrs and then here you know there's martyrs in many yeah. history yeah. I think what the Philippines can do is especially the perhaps a forgotten war their the war against the Americans there's mm -hmm. so many heroes in that yeah. that have been, uh, I guess, dishonored by American history books yeah. that have labeled them rebellions or labeled yeah. them criminals versus the heroism that they were trying to, yeah. their love for this country. So there's an opportunity, and maybe the, the call to action from this entire episode is history, yeah, challenge, challenge what Filipinos have been given to them yeah. by the system that may not uh, necessarily be the, the true picture. Yeah, and to find like to find, and something that I have tried, trying to do, it's an ongoing process, to find Filipino historians who are yeah. revisiting, right? Who are writing the revisionist histories yeah. that are going to help with that. Right? Going back to that idea of a yeah. national identity, you know. Yeah, what is the national, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I really, yeah, I'm excited where this is going because it's uh, a clear call to action that the journey the Philippines is going on, this evolving journey, a lot of the answers are in the past. And that's, uh, so going to places like Corregidor, going to places yeah. across the country, and going to Intramuros. As we, um, these are yeah. places, yeah. these are living places where you can still, where Filipinos can still have a better understanding of the, the vision of what Filipino identity could be. Yeah, I think my last trip to Corregidor, which was just in, in February, um, I, the bat, so all of the batteries had, they're named, you know, there's Battery Way and Battery James and Battery Morrison, and they have all these names, and none of them were recognizable to me. Like, they weren't like Battery Jefferson or something, or, you know, Battery Sherman names that are, you know, like what they name tanks for in the yeah. United States. And I finally found a plaque at Battery James, which indicated that the battery was named for an American who was killed during the, I don't know what it was, refer to it as maybe an insurrection like I don't know what the word yeah during the what was a counterinsurgency operation in the Philippines and it made me wonder 
if maybe that's not where all those names are from, that, that on the same island that has a monument to the Philippine guerrilla war also has, you know, these batteries that are likely named for Americans who mm. died in that, in that conflict, mm. which I never learn something new all the time. This is really good. So, Evan, we're coming to the end of the interview. Uh -huh. I just have two or three more questions yeah, and we'll wrap up. I know we have to get lunch, so I don't want to push it too much. Uh, the billboard question. That is, if you could get a message mm -hmm. that would be easily put on a billboard that could be read by millions of Filipinos tomorrow, what would that message be and why? Read a book. I mean, I think that's my message to everyone now. Our, um, is we've, like the whole world like, is, is losing the, we're literally losing the attention span. And I speak for myself, the ability to sit down and engage with a text. And I am, of course, a proponent of reading history books. And so I think I would have a billboard with maybe three or four covers of, again, I would have to go and find some current sort of revisionist Philippine history writers and just say, pick one of these books and read it, yeah. right? And then give it to someone else or trade or start a book circle and read. Because I know, like I know even from my sh superficial scratching of the surface that they're there and they're writing. Um, they're maybe not getting published in the volume. Like if you go look on Amazon or at the even at the bookstore for books on Philippine history, you'll get Stanley Carnow. No. He's a great guy, he wrote some great books, but his book of Philippine history, which is literally called In Our Image, is really the story of the American involvement in the Philippines. And it's not, I don't think it's meant to be biased or anything like that, but it's literally an American guy writing about the Philippines. And it's well-researched and it's a good book, but we need Filipino historians. Yeah. I need that. Speaking yeah. for myself. So now I have to go to the bookstore after this. And <laughs> I still have a couple of dusty ones on my shelf too, but they're probably outdated. Yeah. Your vision of the Philippines. What, for you, you've been here 20 years, so this yeah. is very, I'm very fascinated with your answer. You've been here 20 years. Your, your family is Filipino. Mm. Um, not just in terms of blood, but in terms of embracing the culture, in terms of yeah. live. this is a land that your children call home. What is your vision for what this country can become? I think I would go back to my sort of rabbit trail about the building of communities. I mm. think we have a very macro view often um, of, of the country. And I think people fall into the expectation that leadership at the highest levels is going to somehow do a thing that's going to fix poverty or corruption or whatever, you know, pick, pick your dilemma. And I think the, my most optimistic vision of the future involves, I mean, the, the term grassroots is, it's cliche and it's overused, but I think that's the kind of thing that's going to transform, and even that's a cliche word, that's going to take things in the right direction. What I see as the right direction is more and more people making the choice to be engaged as part of a community, to make the community that they're a part of, the communities, right, from the small, and then, you know, bigger circles moving out, right, and figure out ways that they can make each one of those things better, right, how they can help their neighbors, what they can do 
to help. I mean, things get so compartmentalized, right? And we build these, we build walls, walls in yeah. between us and it's not, it's not helpful. And it's a really, it is a really hard choice. So I was listening to someone talk about this in a different context. I think it was in the, I think it was an American was talking about how public schools need everyone to go to them because otherwise the public schools become a second class school because the people who can afford private school are taking their resources and their PTA contribution, their membership, their leadership out and into a, into a private school. But the problem is that means someone who can afford a better choice for their child is now being asked to make a decision. Like if I, if I can afford to send my kids to International School of Manila, it's ridiculous for me to choose to send them to the local public school. But in the long term, that is exactly what needs to happen, is the money and the resources and the people and need to be in the same community. And yeah. school is just one way to think about that. Like, we all need people. I mean, how do we make transportation better in the Philippines? We all need to take it. Like, if everybody, including, if, if I did not have my air-conditioned car all the time to drive wherever I wanted, then my I would be much more motivated to seek transportation solutions that would benefit everyone, mm. right? And I think that's true on lots of different, lots mm. of different levels. Yeah. No, excellent. So we've come to the end. The, the noise here, hopefully, does the sound quality is good. For the last few minutes, there has been construction noises yep. appearing out of nowhere. So hopefully, everyone got that and the, the quality. Uh, Evan, I just want to give you the last words. Uh, we, I love this episode. This is an episode that I've been wanting to do for such a long time. I, I believe that I needed someone like you as a thinking partner to do this on, to yeah. deep dive into Filipino history, to see how it impacts today's way of thinking in the Filipino and in the foreigners that call this land their home. What is your final call to action for the listeners or final message you want to give? I'll just call back to your, to your billboard question. I think, I mean, it's a question of educating yourself and not, do not educate yourself with the internet. Do not do that. Get a book, <laughs> a recently published book of Philippine history and read it. I think that's a beautiful way to end. All right. Thank, thank you so thank much, you. Evan. God bless. Panak oh, Baka, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Mike again. Thank you so much for listening to the First World Philippines podcast. It would mean so much to me if you left a review, if you share this podcast, somehow help us spread the word. We do this for free. All we ask in return, please consider sharing this with your friends, people who love the Philippines, and people who want to become successful in this country. This is their podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode.